On today's episode, you'll hear two men talking about endometriosis. I recognize the optics of this, but this is a topic I haven't covered yet and an important one. So when today's expert approached the show with the idea to discuss endometriosis, I said absolutely yes. Dr. Lawrence Orbach completed his training at the New York Hospital Weill Cornell Medical College and SUNY Upstate Medical Center. He served as the Director of Minimally Invasive and Pelvic Reconstructive Surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital and Director of Gynecologic Robotic Surgery at the Mount Sinai Beth Israel Hospital. Dr. Orbach is currently Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at both Cedars-Sinai Marino Del Rey Hospital and Providence St. John's Hospital in Los Angeles and Lenox Hill Hospitals in New York. He is also the Medical Director of GYN Laparoscopic Associates LA in Beverly Hills, California. In his practice, he specializes in minimally invasive and robotic surgery for the treatment of endometriosis and all benign gynecologic conditions requiring surgical interventions. We talk about the pathophysiology of endometriosis, which was very surprising for me, how it typically presents, as well as some atypical presentations, which make more sense given his explanation for how it occurs. We talk about who is at higher risk, different conditions that may be caused or influenced by endometriosis, some misdiagnoses that may actually be endometriosis, and treatment options. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Lawrence Orbach, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brad, and thank you for having me on. So we're going to be talking about something that I am probably not going to see very often as an otolaryngologist, right? We're going to be talking about endometriosis, but it's still something that I need to be aware of because I may get questions from family mm. members or community members, you know, my kids' uh, parents, uh, you know, kids' friends' parents and and, and the such. So, it's, so I think it's important for every physician, whether or not they see it in the office, to to be aware of it. So... For those of us like myself who don't really remember much about endometriosis, can you just give us a brief refresher? Certainly. Um, and what's just as a as an aside, um, I actually I act, I've actually seen a few patients over the years who've required the services of, of an otolaryngologist because they had they had nasopharyngeal implants of endometriosis. And they would get wow. they would get they would get catamenial like nosebleeds like massive nosebleeds and end up in the ER frequently, and no one ever caught it uh, until I had them worked up. That's just a fascinoma for the conversation. How does that physiologically happen? Uh, so we're jump we're jumping ahead here, but this yeah, is where yeah. the conversation's going. I just, so I didn't want to I didn't want to forget. So that's why I'm, I brought it up. But let me kind of go back to the beginning and just you know share some general information. So. The endometrium is the lining inside of the uterus that, that is shed every month when, when uh, patients have their menses. Endometriosis is a condition where we find implants that resemble those cells outside the uterus. Uh, in, the, in the bad old days, the, 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 the running theory, which was postulated by a general surgeon back in the 1920s named Dr. Sampson, was it occurred via retrograde menstruation, meaning that during a woman's period, some of the flow, instead of going out, uh, was being 
uh, was coming out retrograde back through the tubes and, and into the abdominal cavity. Um, so, because he, he, he biopsied tissue when he was operating on patients, uh, and then they looked at it under the microscope and it looked like endometrium, so that's where they came up with that. So it's the whole retrograde menstruation theory. That was subsequently disproved um, years later, but for some reason, people still cling to that theory because even in, in, amazingly enough in many textbooks, uh, medical textbooks, it's still in there as, as a, uh, one, one of, if not the main etiology of it uh, getting there. So, but what we've discovered over the years uh, in all the clinical case reports, there's pretty much the only organ or, or body cavity or space that it has not been reported in is the spleen. Um, it's been found, like I said, you know, in the nasopharynx, in the brain, thyroid, lungs, you name it, it's, it's, it's in the literature. Um, so the, the etiology of it is really, it's thought to be more so multifactorial. Um, and, and also there's a genetic component to it as well. Uh, I'll start off by explaining the genetic component. If it's uh, approximately, uh, if you have a first degree relative who has it, like mother, aunt, sister, grandmother, um, you have you yourself then have a seven to ten times greater chance of having endometriosis, um, and which is a huge predisposer to you know to people being diagnosed with it. The most the most reasonable etiological pathway that, that that's been found is is that of of metaplasia that it occurs where where during embryonic development. The, the mesoderm is the, is the tissue, is the cell type that, that, that forms the urogenital tract. And uh, as we all remember from embryology, some, most of us don't want to remember a lot of it, but because um, of, of a lot of the minutia and detail, the, there's migration of cells in order to form the different structures. And, and like, for example, you know, like the paired organs, you know, the, the, the urogenital sinus it, it ascends and then splits and then forms both ureters, both kidneys, et cetera, and so forth. And the same thing with the uterus um, and tubes. Uh, and so the, in the process of, of, that, of that migration, cell, the, the, there are cells that kind of get stuck in places that they shouldn't be. And then something triggers them to differentiate at some point, be it during embryonic development or after birth or after puberty, or, you know, it can, it triggered it at, at any time. Um, there's even a study that was uh, published uh, in Italy just several years ago where they did autopsies on female fetuses that were miscarried, and they found that nine point something percent, a little over nine percent of them, already had implants of endometriosis in the abdominal and pelvic cavity, uh, which is very similar to the, the rate we see in, in, the, in the general population of roughly 10 percent of women have it. Um, so, and then there are also factors in, uh, such as environmental ones. Uh, we know that there's certain chemicals and toxins, like, like uh, for example, uh, 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 dioxins, which are the byproduct of bleaching, uh, in the in animal models have been shown to trigger the development of endometriosis. So, is components to it? Which one weighs more in the particular patient varies. You know, the genetic component as well as the others. Um, the, uh, so that, that's essentially how it comes about and it can be, I mean, it's usually more commonly, 
I should say, found in the abdomen and pelvis, um, because that's where you know these cells tend to uh, get stuck, so to speak. But they can be anywhere. Um, that makes sense due to proximity, right? Like right. that's just where yeah. they are gonna go anyway. So they make right. it most of the way there, but not all of the way there, and they get right. They end up in nasopharynx. Yeah, and that, and that just just as an uh, an analogy, you know, we all remember like from medical school learning about dermoid cysts, you know, in the ovary. And, the, and those, those, those cysts can have any, any kind of tissue in it. You know, we, we find, you know, you can find hair, teeth, brain, thyroid. Yeah, differentiated tissue, yeah. Right, so, so it's, it's along that, that same metaplastic process that, that these things come about. The problem is, unlike the endometrium, which is in the lining, which has an outflow tract to be, you know, to be uh, uh, expelled, these implants are, if they're on an internal organ or, or on, a, on a, you know, the, the lining inside the abdominal cavity or wherever it is, it's confined to that, that place. And the, the same bleeding and release of inflammatory mediators like cytokines and interleukins and things of that sort that happens in the lining of the uterus and the endometrium happens in these implants, but it has nowhere to go. So each month there's this inflammation and bleeding and uh, also irritation of, and triggering of, of, of nerve receptors, uh, which then results in the symptoms that we find in these patients. Um, the other thing that happens very frequently is that you know, the, the, the symptoms are not just confined to, to the, you know, to the urogenital tract. So, you know, the, so it's not just painful periods or heavy, or heavy periods. Because these implants are commonly in the abdominal cavity, the, 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 the detrimental effects of the release of these substances uh, affects the surrounding organs. So the whole GI tract, the urinary tract, um, because the, the, there's all this sensory nerve input, you then get upregulation of the entire central nervous system because the, the pain signals, we all know, go you know, from the peripheral nerve to the spinal cord, up to the brain, processed, and then signals get sent back. So now you have this two-way discussion going on. And when pain lasts for more than six months, now it's in the chronic pain domain. And then you have this kind of diffusion of symptoms and this generalization and, or central, central sensitization, is what we call it, uh, where you may start off with very pinpoint like pelvic pain on one side, and then all of a sudden it becomes bilateral pain, and then it radiates to the lower back, and people have radiating, you know, to their shoulder, to their neck, you know, shooting pains down their legs, all kinds of seemingly um, un, you know, uh, unconnected symptoms, but they are connected because you you now have your central nervous system involved in the whole process. So, and it can affect it's more than just pain. So it, with, with chronic pain and upregulation of the central nervous system, people get anxiety and depression and, and, and disorder, disordered sleep, um, brain fog, you know, uh, uh, loss of memory, forgetfulness. I mean, it, it, it really kind of blossoms over time the longer that, it, that it's in there. Um, and then the GI symptoms, you know, which are the most common non-gynecologic symptoms in endo patients, can be like bloating, uh, constipation, diarrhea, uh, food intolerances, nausea, you name it. And, and 
It usually sends them down the path of seeing their internist who sends them to the GI doctor who then does an upper endoscopy and a colonoscopy and they find nothing and then they diagnose them. They put them in that wastebasket diagnosis category of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is really, it's just a description. It's not, it's not really getting to the, to the root cause of why they're having irritable bowel sy syndrome. Um, and the same thing with, with the urinary tract because the GI and, and urinary tract are rich with the same receptors that the, that, the, that the genital tract is, which are very sensitive to these, all these inflammatory mediators that are being released. So these things kind of tend to go hand in hand. Um, and in younger patients, you know, the, the most common thing we see, like even pre-puberty, is a lot of GI symptoms, you know, stomach aches, uh, motility issues. Wait, pre-puberty? Yeah. How is that happening physiologically? Yeah, because there, there is low-level activity of, of, of the, uh, you know, of hormones even before puberty. And, and these implants are in places that they shouldn't be. So they're, they're, already, they're already working. Uh, they tend to, to then escalate, you know, once they hit puberty, uh, as, as you know, you know, more uh, the ovarian function starts to, to increase, you know, to full speed, so to speak. Uh, and, and the, you know, what we commonly see in, in a lot of these younger patients when you start digging into their history is that, you know, they used to miss days of school almost every month. You know, the mother will tell you that they were curled up, you know, in, in bed for like 24 or 48 hours, you know, popping uh, ibuprofen like M&Ms and Tylenol and, and, and then they're, you know, the, the, the classic picture is the mother then takes the daughter to, to her gynecologist who then puts her on the birth control pill starting at age 11 or 12 and they've been on it now for 10 years, 15 years or more. Um, and it's basically a pathway of like treating symptoms. People tend to think, well, it'll just get better. Or then, you know, the school nurse tells you, you know, this is part of growing up, which it's not, you know, periods should not be debilitating because a lot of these patients will then, you know, they go, they go off to college and then they're missing classes in college and they're always in the, in the, in the uh, student health office. And then they get their first job and, they, and they're calling in sick all the time. And they think, at that point, it's been going on for so long. It's there. It's what I what I call the new normal. They don't think anything of it, you know, and they just kind of they revolve their lives around the limitations that are created by by the symptoms from, from the endometriosis. Uh, and you know, and it, it it's really quite you know uh, debilitating, and, and it's really quite life altering. Uh, and um, you know, so the 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 approach that I take is multifaceted. So obviously you want to get rid of the endometriosis. Wait, hold on. Yeah. We're getting a little further away from, cause I want to, I, I no. want to stay with presentations and yeah. symptoms yeah. before we, before we get to management. Right. Okay. So you, you mentioned that yeah. our, it sounds like our, our gastroenterology colleagues need to be aware of it. Our urology colleagues need to be aware of it because right. of those presentations. You mentioned back pain. Right. right, that can can be a symptom of endometriosis, um, but it it seems like the clinical picture is concurrent with the menstrual cycle, right? And so, so that's going to be the 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 giveaway. That's like I get back pain once a month. 
-hmm. I get these GI symptoms once a month. I get my urogenital problems once a month. Is, is that the case? Yeah, yes and no. So, so the, there's both cyclical and acyclical related symptoms. And here and herein lies the problem because most clinicians, even OBGYNs, are for some reason taught, oh, if you if your symptoms are just you know during your period, then you know, then it could be endometriosis or it could be just you have bad periods. If you don't, and, and a lot of them then believe if, you, if your pain is outside of your period, then it can't be endometriosis. And it's not true. So it can be concurrent with, with, with their period. It could be outside their period. It could be during, you know, the premenstrual uh, part of their cycle, or it could be completely unrelated to anything revolving around that time of the month when, when they're having about to or having their period. Um, and the, 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 a lot of the coexisting symptoms, for example, like the back pain. So what, what, what ends up happening is the, when you, when you have the chronic pain like this and this constant, you know, the best, and this is how I, I, descri I describe it to patients because it really kind of drives home the point. You know, if you have acute pain, let's say you, you're cooking and you burn your finger on the stove. So you touch the hot stove, you quickly move your hand away. It burns, it hurts. You put some salve or ointment on it. And by the next morning, it's not throbbing anymore. If you touch it, it'll be sensitive, but it, it was an acute event. It heals and it goes away. Chronic pain like endometriosis is akin to putting your hand on that hot stove and just leaving it there. And, and you, so you're, you're getting this, the, these pain signals are just constantly coming. And, and, it, and, it, and it creates this, this sensory overload, uh, which the other analogy that I use is, is like, it's like your car stereo. Like if you, if you turn it on you know, halfway, it's music, it's pleasant, you enjoy it. If I turned it on full blast and left it there all the time, you would like lose your mind and, and it, would be, it would be overwhelming. And this is what's happening. You're, you're overwhelming your central nervous system with pain signals. And when you have this constant uh, feedback loop of sensory input and then, and then uh, in response to it, the, the, you then end up with a, a neurology, they call it crosstalk between nerves. So the, these nerve roots come out of your spine. They then they continue to branch and they innervate different things. If it's, in, if it's in the pelvis and it's coming from the sacral nerve roots, what's gonna happen? A lot of these sacral nerve, nerves are gonna be communicated with and then trigger these other symptoms like lower back pain, pain you know, uh, uh, you know, in, their, in their bottom, pain shooting down their thighs, people have tingling in their toes. All these things that are, seem like so distant and unrelated are completely related. And what ends up happening with the, with, with the, with the, with the chronic nature of, of, of the pain also is that it's not only you know, the, the nerves, but then the muscles and the pelvic floor and the abdominal wall and the lower back are hypertonic and they end up with what's called pelvic floor dysfunction and also dysfunction of the, of the musculature in the, in, the, in the general area. So the muscles are very tight. So now you have pain from these, these hypertonic muscles. And the problem is the pelvic floor is like a hammock of muscles. The crisscross and through those, those the, the, that hammock of muscles run vital structures like the urethra, the vagina, and the rectum. So all those structures are in there and they're getting squeezed. And anything that triggers, you know, contraction is going to tense up those muscles even more. And anything that triggers 
that they, you know, a preemptive sense of more pain, like, oh, I'm going to have, you know, I have painful bowel movements. I'm about to have a bowel movement. It's going to hurt. You're going to involuntarily tense up even more. Uh, same thing with, with intercourse. Women have pain during intercourse. If you know it's going to hurt, what's going to happen? You're going to tense up. You know, so, so these, are all, these are other symptoms that, that, that come about. Um, we actually talked about that in an episode quite a few episodes ago, the nocebo effect, right? The fact that you anticipate yeah. pain exactly. leads to more pain. So if you tell exactly. someone this is going to hurt, but right. basically this is, that's an internal loop. The internal right. loop is telling them this is going to hurt. Exactly. So, so you, you have to you have to do to get them to unlearn that response while doing physical therapy, public floor physical therapy to help stretch and lengthen those muscles and stop that that you know vicious cycle. The other thing, kind of going back to the GI issues, the the inflammatory effect that that, that it has on the bowel will then trigger uh, like motility issues. So it tends to be slower motility and, and like and you know classically what we'll see is like obstipation it'll be constipation most of the month and then when they get their period then they get diarrhea and then the whole thing resets again and it's usually overflow from so much constipation and what ends up happening in a lot of these patients is there's a high incidence of a condition called SIBO SIBO small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because the motility is slowed down the bacteria hangs out longer than it should, and you have overgrowth of bacteria in the bowel because warm, moist place is a great growth medium for, for bacteria. And if, let's say, for argument's sake, normal colony count in your small bowel is 50 million, and you have overgrowth and yours is 100 million, what are you gonna get? You're gonna get bloating because the byproduct of bacterial metabolism are gases and enzymes. So you're gonna get a lot of gas and a lot of enzymes, so there's a lot of distension in the bowel, you get bloating. The enzymes then are very irritating. If it, if, if it continues chronically, they end up with what's called leaky gut syndrome, where there's increased permeability through the bowel wall. And a lot of these inflammatory uh, materials from the overgrowth then permeate through the bowel into the abdomen. And then that irritates everything that it comes in contact with, including the endometriosis. So it's this, it's this game of ping pong of like these conditions coming about, one's irritating the other, one's flaring up, it irritates the other condition and it's back and forth. So earlier you had mentioned that uh, IBS is something that is commonly, a diagnosis commonly given to patients who ultimately could attribute their symptoms to endometriosis. Are there any other diagnoses out there that our patients may have that you would say actually more accurately you could attribute their symptoms to endometriosis? Sure. So another condition that we commonly see is, is called interstitial cystitis. It's an inflammatory condition in the bladder um, where there's a, there's a lining that coats the inside of the bladder. It's a protein coat that protects the bladder from any irritants in the urine from penetrating into the bladder wall. And it, it, it has, there are different conditions that it's associated with. But we see it very frequently with an endometriosis, and the symptoms are urgency, frequency, um, you know, burning with 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 urination, and it's and it's and it's exacerbated by by foods that people eat that are very high in potassium or very acidic, um, and it tends to it, it mimics a lot of endo symptoms 
and kind of goes together with it. I mean, it, it's even referred to in the, in the literature as the, as the evil twin of endometriosis. Uh, and there's, there's this triad of endometriosis, SIBO, and, and, and interstitial cystitis, or we call it IC, is, is a very common one. So the, the, I can tell you, my, I mean, I've been doing this for 24 years. My, my yield, for example, at SIBO, I'll send the patients to get tested for it. Um, they do the lactulose breath test. It's a take-home kit that they get from the or internist or gastroenterologist. And, and patients that I send to get worked up, probably more than 85% of them come back positive. That's how common it is. Uh, and in, and the patients once, you know, who, who um, with the bladder symptoms, I would say more than half of them, at the time of surgery, I'll do a cystoscopy to look in their bladder and you can see telltale signs of it. There are inflammatory changes that you can see in the bladder. Um, easily more than half of them have some, some degree of that. Uh, so, and that's why it's important to like work up all of the, the symptoms and all of the coexisting issues because you know, you, you, you'll never get the patient to feel as good as they can if you, if you, if you disregard a lot of these things. And, and unfortunately, there are, there's, a, there's a subset of, of physicians who feel that it's purely a surgical problem. And once you get rid of the endometriosis, wherever you land is where you're going to be. And that's, that's it. And it's not true. You know, you've got to treat the GI symptoms. You have to treat the bladder symptoms. You have to treat the pelvic floor dysfunction. Uh, you know, you, you have to address everything because think, some of these things will improve when you get rid of the endometriosis. But something that, that's been going on for years or decades is not going to, there's no magic bullet that's going to get rid of everything. And, and the, the, the unfortunate reality is that in this country, I'm not talking about in the third world, the average delayed diagnosis is over 10 years. It's probably close to 12 years. Uh, and it doesn't take, it's not hard to achieve that because if you're starting to have, even if you, it starts when you're prepubescent or puberty and you start having your period when you're 11 or 12, and now you're coming to see me when you're 25, boom, it's 13, 14 years. Uh, and a lot of people end up waiting even longer uh, because they're, they're told it's in your head or, you know, it's part of growing up I and mean, there's nothing to do about it. Take the birth control pill, get pregnant. That's another common one that, that people are told. Um, and or <laughs> yeah. that's wait, that's the that. OK, that's the treatment strategy is get yeah, pregnant. I, you, you cannot believe the things that I hear from patients <laughs> that, that they were told by by other clinicians you know have a baby sure everything yeah. will be okay just have a baby right so it, it's 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 really and that's where you know unfortunately there are not enough clinicians who understand this and who treat the entire patient i always tell patients i'm, I'm not here just to treat your pelvis i don't have pelvic tunnel vision you have many symptoms and and i can usually guess a lot of their symptoms like i can guess their because they come in and they're they're very they're very somber and like and I can tell that they're 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 tired because they're not sleeping well they're anxious about all this there's usually some depression um, and other or other mood issues uh, many people are they're on anti-anxiety medication antidepressants I mean everyone's trying to like plug a hole with with medications or other treatments to treat symptoms rather than stopping looking at the big picture and 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 really addressing you know the the whole uh, the whole issue and the and the and the, and the global nature of, of of what it can cause so aside from family history of endometriosis because you said that's like 
seven to ten times more likely to to have it if there if there's a family history. Right. Um, are there any other risk factors we should be looking for? You know, you know, you know. The the unfortunately we live in an industrial world, and I I, I think the exposure to a lot of toxicity in the environment and you know chemicals and 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 what i mean what do you mean do you mean like air pollution or air water UV radiation like oh, i'm not sure yeah, what you're it, referring it's, to it's, it's 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 in the air it's in the water uh there, there's there's you know radiation i mean there's you know there there aren't there, there are hard and fast associations with with certain uh certain chemicals we know that because they, they've, they've done testing on and, and, and animal models and, and they can trigger the, the uh, development of endometriosis, you know, with exposure to like dioxins and other, and other things. Um, but it's not, um, it, you know, we don't, the fact that, you know, we see so much of it, I mean, the, 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 pre, the, the, the incidence it's, is, is, is well over 10%, which, which comes to, close to 200 million women worldwide. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's as common as, as diabetes. And, but it gets a fraction of the attention. I mean, that's changing slowly. There's more money now being put into to research in the, in the area of endometriosis um, and, and clinical studies. Um, and, and hopefully that the pendulum will swing considerably. And one of the things that I focus on uh, is early diagnosis, um, because there, the you know there have been multiple large uh, studies done and, and and multiple statements from like uh, the American College of OBGYN and other big governing agencies, you know, emphasizing the importance of early detection and that that just because someone is a teen doesn't mean they can't have advanced disease because they do. You know, it's, is it less common than in, a, in an adult? Yes, but it still can, can you can have deep infiltrating endometriosis in, in a 15 year old. Uh, so there's no, and the, and the, 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 one of the, one of the differences between endometriosis and a lot of other conditions that there's no, there's no correlation to the amount of symptoms and the amount of findings. So you'll, you'll have patients who are, who are very symptomatic, who have very pinpoint focal disease, and that's what's, What's triggering all their symptoms, and then you have patients who, who, you know, have minimal symptoms, but their presenting issue is, yeah, I have some symptoms, but I've been trying to get pregnant for five years, and I've gone through ten rounds of IVF, and nothing's happening, uh, and that's why I'm here. And, you know, the 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 really impressive statistic is that is that nearly fifty percent of 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 what what's called uh, unexplained infertility. So the patient has had the million dollar workup with a reproductive endocrinologist, Every, you know, hormones are normal, tubes are patent, the semen analysis is normal, everything is normal, they're ovulating, nothing's happening. Uh, nearly half of those patients have endometriosis. And many of them, they don't think they have any symptoms until you really take a detailed history. I mean, I spend, my initial consults are an hour and a half plus because I'm digging all the way back into the history, from what, you know, when they were kids, um, and you you really, when you bring up these things and you kind of point them out to people and they realize that it's not normal and yeah, I have more symptoms than I thought, um, 
it's very illuminating for them and it's very you know it's very telling and unfortunately validating sounds yeah, validating extreme, and that's that that is the the best word to describe it and you beat me to the punch because that's what 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 almost every patient who 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 comes in and they're just they they have no idea what's going on they've been told so many different things they've seen 20 different doctors you sit there and you you you, you get a full history from them you explain to them what's going on and why it's going on and why all these these you know head to toe kind of symptoms are happening and you see the light bulb go off in their heads and many of them will literally start crying and they'll, they're like i'm not crying because i'm upset I'm, I'm crying because now it makes sense to me and i'm not losing my mind and i've had patients who've told me that their therapists and psychiatrists have gotten fed up with them because they're always complaining and, and they tell them it's in their head because they have no idea what what they're looking at and rather than then directing them to someone who can maybe figure it out, they invalidate what what they're experiencing. They invalidate what they're feeling. And and that's Thank like Yeah. So ahead. you you had um you said that the surgery to remove it is not the be all end all. And which makes me think you had also mentioned that you've they found um endometrium implanted everywhere but the spleen so let's say it's not in the abdominal cavity let's say it's somewhere else fine it's in the nasopharynx i can you know cauterize that and ablate it probably but like that's an easy it's in your nose new place easy place to get to what about some of these other places that that and how do you even identify if it's there right like you you would do not i'm probably using the wrong term like an exploratory laparotomy right or i guess laparoscopy yeah to, to to identify it what about in other places? And so that's a great question. So the, the so the the surgery is 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 it's the cornerstone of treatment. I mean, you really you know you want to get rid of what's causing all the problems. Uh, and and just to digress a little bit, what I, what I generally do for most people and most most patients is I will start treating all their other coexisting pain generators as a lead up to surgery because. Obviously, you know, you're gonna, if you start feeling better, you're go, it, it's a positive psychological, you know, factor. And it also, it makes you feel better and stronger in preparation to going to, to have surgery. And then you continue all those things afterwards until everything is, you know, you know resolved or, or mostly resolved. The, 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 as far as the, like what surgery you do. So, I mean, what, you know, in, you know, the old saying, when you hear hoofbeats, you think horses, not zebras. Most people have it intra-abdominally, so somewhere in their pelvis or their abdomen. Uh, and, and so laparoscopic surgery will identify that. If they have it elsewhere, there's usually other symptoms, like the nosebleeds, like, like patients who have it in their lungs have, have these spontaneous pneumothoraces, like you know, canamedial pneumothoraces. They'll, you know, they'll have a, like a heavy bed period all of a sudden they have a collapsed lung and they're in the, in the ER getting a chest tube put in. Uh, you know, you have a patient who's 20 years old and had a cerebral hemorrhage and there's no, you know, there's no, there's no aneurysm. There's no, you know, there's no space occupying lesion, like a tumor or whatever. Like, well, why is it happening? You know, so you start scanning the, those, those areas to, to look, you know, for, for the etiology of, of, of these things. So, the, the more distant, odd kind of presentations are, are far less common, um, but they generally have, they have related symptoms to those 
areas or organs or structures that would then uh, uh, you know make you suspicious of it and when they're and they already have it you know you're already suspecting endometriosis and it doesn't make sense that they're having you know these these distant symptoms um, then you start working those things up you know and, and so you're not gonna have someone with meningeal endometriosis that doesn't have significant disease in the abdomen yeah they, they're right? you're like yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be in multiple locations, and usually right. So they're gonna be uh, okay. So so right. they're gonna hopefully arrive at a diagnosis of endometriosis, and then carrying that diagnosis if they have right. issues in other places, then, right. then that yeah. could and, lead you back. And, and, and okay. then other things, you know, like some you know some people will become will complain of like like upper like abdominal almost thoracic you know pain. You know, so you know, we look at the we look at the diaphragm when we do the surgery. Sometimes you can have diaphragmatic implants. Um, you know, and if they if they have other respiratory symptoms, you know, you'll you'll do a, a chest CT and have them see a, 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 a cardiothoracic surgeon uh, to work them up. Because and I work with all different. I work with cardiothoracic surgeons, urologists, colorectal people, because because of the uh, it can be in so many different places. You need to be prepared. You know, for every every possibility, um, and you know the the and as you were saying, the surgery is laparoscopic, and surgery is another thing that you know there's there's the right way to do it, and there's the wrong way to do it. You know, so mo you know the the uh, doing doing ablation surgery where you burn it or laser it is associated with a higher recurrence rate or more, I mean, more aptly, I think it, we, we should call it persistence rate because- you know, Really, because I found lasers to be something that every patient's really looking for. If you can do it with lasers, lasers they're going to have confidence in you. In fact, I want right. that to be the advertising campaign for my practice. Right. e allergy, now more lasers. But you're saying no lasers. La but laser as a way to excise or laser as a way to ablate? So, if, so some of us use laser- Instead of do use of, lasers. Yeah, some of us use it instead of scissors. I've done it with laser. I've done, I do it with scissors. Um, it's really you know it's it's fine, but but you're just using the laser to cut the tissue and remove the disease. What yeah. I'm talking about ablation is outright just burning the the hell out of out of the tissue, and you know the the what I would describe it as is it's the tip of the iceberg phenomenon. What you're seeing is two dimensional. It's like it's the surface. You don't know how deep it is. You know, you may have a two or three millimeter implant, but it may be six millimeters deep. And what happens if I just burn the surface? I'm just burning a little bit of the disease, creating scar tissue over it and, and, and trapping the rest of the endo beneath the surface, which is going to continue to do its thing. And that's why the 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 if you look in the literature, the, the, the recurrence rate of endometriosis with, with ablation where you burn it. Is, is upwards of 35%. And, and all the excision studies, the rate is somewhere between three and 9%. So you're talking about a, like orders of magnitude difference. And the, the, the five-year, you, know, uh, you know, cure rate, if you will, is, is, is far greater with, with excision, as you can imagine. And, the, and because the recurrence rate is, is so much lower and uh, the problem is when people have ablative surgery and then ultimately they end up having repeat surgeries, which, you know, more than a third end up 
needing it, uh, then there's distortion of anatomy, there's adhesions. Uh, it's much more difficult to ex completely excise all the disease. It's not impossible, but sometimes it's, it becomes difficult when you have what's called an endometrioma, which is a cyst in the ovary full of endometriosis. And, and you have doctors who are like are following them for like years. And during that time, they leak, they rupture. And now you have this stuff just oozing all over the place and you have adhesions to the bowel, you have adhesions, uh, you know, to any and all surrounding structures. And it's, 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 you know, it, it's like using a, like a paintball gun in the abdomen and pelvis. It's, you can't strip out everything. There's no way to get all of it out. So, you know, certain things are just not meant to be watched. And if it's an endometrioma, it's not going away. I mean, all that you can hope for is that it stays stable, but it more than likely is going to continue getting larger because every month it's having more and more bleeding and more and more uh, accumulation of, of this material in there. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, making the right diagnosis, doing the right surgery, treating all the coexisting pain generators and issues is, is key. And that's that's the the step-by-step the -step way to get the best possible outcome. There's no- Sorry, uh, treating all the pain generators. What yeah. do you mean by that? I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the upregulation of the central nervous system that's causing all these other pain symptoms, the back pain, the leg pain, the shoulder pain, the neck pain, uh, you know, all the, what kind of medication are you talking about? So what, what, and that's a good question. So what, what we, what we generally treat with are, so narcotics do nothing as we know full well, it just, it just, it numbs your sensation of the pain, but the pain is still there and things are still as they were, you're just less aware of it. Medications like gabapentin and Lyrica help to kind of calm the central nervous system down bring their, their pain threshold back to a more normal level. Um, and that, so that's systemically what we, you know, we commonly use. Uh, treating the, the, the pelvic floor, you know, the, the, we, we use uh, compounded um, suppositories of medications like, like baclofen and Valium and things of that sort to de you know, that you can use vaginally and rectally to directly get absorbed into the tissue and into the muscles. To, to, to relax the muscles and also decrease inflammation. And that works great in conjunction with the physical therapy because you know, you're working directly on rehabilitating the muscles, but you're also medicating them with, 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 with uh, pharmaceuticals that are gonna help accelerate that, that healing process. Uh, so that's, that's some of the ways you know, that we, 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 you know, we approach treating the whole, the whole upregulated central nervous system. The, the SIBO, is treated with antibiotics. Usually, you know, the, the, the lactulose breath test checks for methane and hydrogen, which are generally elevated, one or both are elevated. And, uh, and it's, it's just a two week course of, of oral antibiotics, you know, Zyfaxan and Neomycin, if it's both. Um, if you had SIBO, it's, it's, you're much more likely to have recurrence of it. So, if, you know, if they have it again down the road, you know, you just retreat them. Uh, and that, that then, cools off all the inflammation in the bowel a lot because with all, all this inflammation, it's not only the, the bloating and the, the mobility, motility problems, but they, they generally have like malabsorption issues because there's so much inflammation in their small bowel. So they're not, they're, you know, they may be eating, but they're not really, you know, extracting from what they're eating 
what you know all the nutrients that, that they need. Um, there's also a high incidence of, of, of other of autoimmune diseases in endo patients. So, you know, many times we'll see them, you know, with, with autoimmune thyroid diseases like Hashimoto's, connective tissue disorders, things of that sort. No, you know, there, there's, there have been postulated theories of, of an autoimmune uh, linkage of endometriosis, and that's why we see a lot of other autoimmune diseases, which I happen to agree with. So, um, you know, this has really been uh, um, very informative about endometriosis, especially for an otolaryngologist um, who, who can't, couldn't imagine that I'd ever see something. But now it's, it's, it's something that I'm going to have to need, uh, I'm going to need to keep in the back of my mind as a possibility for, uh, for some of my patients and a lot of our gastroenterology, general surgery, um, emergency department, internal medicine, obviously OB and, and urology. So many of our colleagues are going to have to keep this um top of mind uh, psych, as you mentioned psychology psychiatry um are, are going to need to keep this in mind as, in terms of a, a possible diagnosis so if we want to learn more about it or um or or learn more about you where where do we find you so i um i have a, a website um and i'm also i have instagram and facebook uh, accounts uh, so you can Google me and you can find all of those. And there's a lot of, I post a lot of uh, information and, um, uh, you know, whenever there's um, a, a lecture that I'm giving or anything that, that you can view online, those are also made available. Um, and I am, I am in California. My office is here in Los Angeles, actually in Beverly Hills. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, th those are, those are the main, you know, internet slash social media outlets. What are your what's your what are your handles on uh, uh, on Instagram? Instagram or... It's uh, at uh, Dr. Larry Orbach. Okay. And uh, and and Facebook, you can just punch my name in, um, and then my my website is lagyndoc.com. Um, and, uh, and, and there, you know, there's a lot of information there about, about endometriosis, about how to treat endometriosis. Um, I also use like the most up-to-date modalities surgically. I, I use the, the Da Vinci robotic platform because it's 3d high definition, uh, uh, imaging and also very, very enriched instrumentation. Um, and it really, it, it gives you a lot more, uh, better resolution to see esoteric disease and more, you know, less obvious things, uh, as, as well as giving, uh, affording the, uh, the, the, the uh, instrumentation to do very, very fine and, and involved surgeries. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time. We really uh, learned a lot. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate uh, you having me on the show. And I hope that uh, we continue to spread the word and, and, and increase awareness, because I think that's key. And I'll keep doing everything that I can to achieve that. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.